Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Here we go. It is Thursday. It's the 21st of September. Jack Riccardi on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Good afternoon. Welcome to our dreadful little show. And feel free to jump in and join at 210-599-5555. Now, I don't know what you're uh, uh you know, what you're doing right now, but obviously I'm doing doing my job, doing my work. Maybe you're doing your work. Today's Thursday, so it's a work day. Uh you're going to go to work tomorrow cuz tomorrow's Friday. That's part of the work week. If you're lucky, maybe you have the weekend off. The House of Representatives called it a weekend about three hours ago. They adjourned the House until next week. No budget deal. Nothing accomplished. Remember, remember in the Constitution, this is the number one thing. The House of Representatives, this is their number one job. How many of us with an actual job get to decide when our weekend starts? I mean, not counting if you, like, maybe own the company or work independently. But, I mean, you you call the weekend on Thursday afternoon, early afternoon. You haven't done the thing the whole world is waiting for you to do. That's the House of Representatives. In the Senate, they had Fetterman as the presiding officer today. Senator Fetterman is presiding over the Senate in a short sleeve, uh, sweatshirt, and uh, shorts. And it's not just that they've relaxed the dress code for this guy. He wears the same damn clothes every day. Can you imagine what he must smell like up close? I mean, you gotta you gotta launder your clothes. You gotta change your clothes. Can, are we gonna Are we gonna at least require that? How about okay? We can't have a dress code. Could we have like a Could we have like a laundry requirement or something maybe, you know, or maybe deodorant or something tells me he's probably like one of those natural deodorant guys, right? You know, those people that wear like the Tom's deodorant (laughs) that doesn't really work. (laughs) I'm wearing natural deodorant. Yeah, I can tell. So that's uh, that's I don't want to hear that Congress is a job. Congress is not a job. When you have a job and you work for somebody and you have hours, and you have duties, it's really clear whether or not you've done the job, the duties. Like, And you certainly don't go home if you haven't, and sometimes even if you've finished the job, right? In some jobs, you just have to stay. Even if you've finished what you were supposed to do, they're like, well, no, you're on the clock till such and such a time. So these guys do not have a job. This is not a job. Uh, and you know, I, I just, it, it's, it's, it's hard to even, um, I mean, we're supposed to cover them, you know, we're supposed to be on top of all this is it, you just want to turn away and, and, and turn your back. I won't, but you know, you want to, this was a great moment. I want to play this for you. Um, we played a little bit of Merrick Garland, uh, fading in the wilting under the questioning yesterday, uh, he got absolutely raked by uh, 
Congresswoman Victoria Sparts. She's a Republican from Indiana. She's she's leaving the House. She's retiring. Um, and she's um, a Soviet emigre. So she's pretty powerful when she talks about, like, freedom issues and stuff like that. She lit into Merrick Garland, asking him, do you realize how Americans now view their government, now, now view your department? Listen to this, cut number two. Attorney General, you had a very moving statement about your grandparents coming here uh, from Belarus to live in the country without fear of prosecution. I grew up in very similar country, Ukraine now, and when I came here as a young person, I believed in the value as an American not to be afraid of my government. But I wanted to tell you, and I want to share with you and get your thoughts on that. Are you aware that a lot of Americans are now uh, afraid of being prosecuted by your department. Are you aware about that? Are you aware of that? I'm just saying, are you aware or not? He's speechless. Uh, I think that uh, constant attacks on the department and saying no, it's that not a tax. Well, let me let me give you an example. I don't know. We talk what... about January 6. People. I'm sorry. Here, there, there are some people came on January 6. There are probably were some people that came on January 6 here. You know that had bad intent, but a lot of good Americans from my district came here because they are sick and tired of this government not serving them. They came with strollers and the kids, and there was chaotic situation because the proper security wasn't provided. That's a question that was answered really why. Why we debated for 45 minutes on the floor and didn't stop the debate after the people broke in into the Capitol. But these people came, they were throwing the smoke bombs into the crowd with strollers with kids. People were showed up, you know, FBI agent to people's houses. You had in my district, in my town, FBI phone numbers all over the district. Please call, call that. People are truly afraid. I just want to make sure if you're not aware that you are. And this is a big problem when people are afraid of their own government. And I'll show you some other things. We're talking about justice system. I don't question, you're probably not a bad person. I don't know you, but what I'll tell you, you're in charge of the department. And people right now feel, you know, I look at Durham report and I call on the FISA violations of queries of millions of Americans, right? It's like KGB, but when I read Durham reports, we have this, you have a nice, you know, playbook. First, let's have a special counsel, and then you don't have to answer any questions here. Then, let's extend slow walk investigation on Hillary Clinton, on Hunter, everything is slow walk. We were very quick on Donald Trump, but you were very mm. slow walk. Then, by now, the she time... She just goes on and on like this. She just, just lays into him, grills him. He's just hemming and hawing and kind of like weaving back and forth. Uh, I mean, I, I realize she's kind of ranting and she's kind of all over the place, but I don't know. There's, I, I feel like that's somebody that represents us. I don't feel like that's somebody that's that's mouthing the talking points of some think tank or some donor. Uh, it sounds like it's from the heart. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's this is a very basic thing that we don't talk about because we sometimes get lost in the in the weeds of specific issues. But the the degree to which... Americans now feel like their government 
has them rather than we are a people with a government. That That is a profound shift, tilt, change that is taking place over the, I would say, over the last 20 years or so. Um, and it's not one party, and it's it's just a trend. So that I think when you look at stuff like election integrity and distrust of elections and distrust of the Justice Department and January 6th and all this stuff, um, people like Garland and, and people in that culture, they don't, I don't think they, they really, uh, maybe they don't care, but I also don't really think they understand. They're not figures of trust. They are not figures of um, authority and integrity. They're figures of fear and intimidation. And we're not governing the country by the consent of the people. We're governing the country by the uh, fear and snitching and and surveillance of the people, which is very different. And reminded Victoria Sparts of where she came from. She is not the first person I have ever heard who hails from a totalitarian country who is trying to tell you and me, hey, you're on that path, whether it's China, whether it's Iran, whether it's the former Soviet Union. How many of these immigrants do we need to hear? How many times do we need to be talked to like this before we start to figure out, oh, you know what? Yeah, we are... We are we're following that playbook. 210-599-5555. Do you remember the story? Um, I don't think we talked about it very much. Maybe we didn't even talk about it at all. There was a story about a school in um, Pennsylvania where um, they were, uh, the kids, the kids walked out of the school because the school district was going to allow uh, people to use whatever bathroom they identified with sexually. So the kids walked out, hundreds of kids walked out of the school district in Pennsylvania because the school district wouldn't listen to them and was going to make the bathroom rule. And... um, the kids were interviewed, local media did the story, and the kids talked about feeling unsafe, and uh, they, had, uh, they were aware of sexual assault cases in other districts, like infamously in Virginia. But I thought it was interesting that these kids did this, and we weren't told that we should listen to them. We weren't told that we should heed them. Because I don't know if you've noticed or not, but one of the favorite, speaking of playbook, one of the favorite tricks these days is to uh, stake out a position and then put children out in front as human shields, uh, guns, uh, climate change, the trans issue. Adults don't want to debate other adults. Adults don't want to hear criticism from other adults, so they hide behind children. So I'm just curious, if we're supposed to listen to Greta about the climate and we're supposed to listen to David Hogg about the guns and the schools, why aren't we supposed to listen to the Pennsylvania kids about uh, who should use which bathroom? Why aren't we heeding them? Why aren't we led by them? Why aren't their voices honored and heard? And why isn't every network newscaster with, you know, butter won't melt in his mouth interviewing them and and, and nodding uh, intellectually at their observations? Well, because they're not saying the right thing, right? 
Speaking of remember, I don't know if you remember during, um, I would say like roughly pre-COVID, probably like Obama and Trump, when you would have these debates about illegal immigration, if you were taking a strong position on the border and enforcing our laws and and, um, citizenship has to mean something, you would get the Statue of Liberty thrown at you. You'd get somebody, kind of a dim bulb, kind of a not a highly thought-out person, and they would, they would try to throw the Statue of Liberty, the Emma Lazarus poem, on the base or the plinth or whatever of the Statue of Liberty, the whole, give us, you're tired, you're hungry. Well, um, your response would be, uh, that's, that's a poem. That's not the law. But they would, they would tell you, that's the spirit of America. That's what we're about. That's what we're supposed to honor. We're supposed to live up to the Emma Lazarus poem. That's what they would say. And you couldn't dissuade them from it, even though, again, it had nothing to do with the Constitution or laws, and it didn't have the force of law. It's a freaking poem. Well, now the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, governor of a sanctuary state, uh, is saying this on Wednesday from the New York Post. Governor Kathy Hochul warning that her state is at capacity, urging newly arrived migrants to settle somewhere else. Hochul told New York One that granting temporary protective status and expediting work permits for thousands of Venezuelans is an important step, but the governor warned that her state is, quote, at capacity, and people should consider other cities and states to live in. Why do you hate immigrants, Kathy Hochul? Why aren't you living up to the Statue of Liberty poem? It's right in your state. You should go take a look at it. Uh, do you use any brawn shaving products? Do you know what brawn, B-R-A-U-N, or kind of a, I think it's a European company. It's a pretty well-known company. They, they've been around a long time. They make razors and shavers and, you know, nose hair clippers and gro- grooming products, I guess you would say, brawn. Um, they are uh, taking heat for a new um, ad with a trans man shaving his beard with a Bronze Series X hybrid trimmer. Um, and people are calling them out for using a guy with um, the breast surgery scars and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so people are now on on X saying, "Well, that's it. It's they're the Bud Light of trimmers and sh- shavers and razors, and I hope they get the Bud Light treatment and all that." Um, I was just curious. I wonder why so many men's shaving product companies are so woke. Like, there's woke companies in every industry in every segment. You know, I mean, I, I get that. I get that this is a thing we're going through, and it's about getting your ESG score and your, you know, getting your likes and your clicks and your virtue signaling and all of that. Uh, But from Gillette to Harry's to Braun, I mean, if a guy wants to shave, you know, it's hard to find a company that doesn't have some kind of damn political message. I'm I'm, I'm not telling you what to do or to boycott or anything. This is like a very masculine thing. We're shaving. Can there not be one company 
that says we're for dudes. We're for actual men. We're a product for men. Our products are for actual men, not not men who menstruate, not men who have babies. We're we're just we're making a product for men. Could we have one? Wouldn't wouldn't the competition of the marketplace suggest that there would just be there would have to be one, right? One not so woke, just making a good product, just making a sharp blade kind of company. That's all I ask. We're talking to uh, Congressman Tony Gonzalez coming up in a few minutes, and uh, you can join the show at 210-599-5555. Yeah, the the Braun Razor people are taking it uh, in the wherever. (laughs) Uh, I guess they want to be the Bud Light of of shavers and trimmers. But, uh, no, I, I think... I, I think we're walking through a process, okay, I do, where um, we have to reach a peak of uh, wokeness and, and signaling, and there has to be a certain amount of pain and, and uh, you know, angry shareholders and maybe even lawsuits about fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. This is going to take a while. We're not going to... It took a long time to get into this, and it's going to take a long time to to walk out of the woods of this whole thing. Once in a while, somebody will come at me and say, well, you you talk about, like, cancel culture, but aren't conservatives cancel culture when they boycott Bud Light or Braun Shavers or or what have you? Um, I thought that you conservatives were in favor of private companies doing whatever they wanted to do and acting however they wanted to act. Well, the answer is yes, we are. Whether it's Target or Bud Light or an airline or a pasta company or a razor company, yes, I, I, I have always believed, and I still do, and I, I'm saying it. They can make these choices, and I can choose not to buy their brand. Cancel culture is not when I don't buy your brand. Cancel culture is when I want you taken off the shelves. I want you put out of business. I want you driven from the marketplace. What Republicans and conservatives are doing with Bud Light or Target is they're choosing. And they're letting everyone else choose too. So when you don't buy Bud Light, you're not preventing anyone else from buying Bud Light. You're not preventing Anheuser-Busch from making Bud Light. You're just not buying it. Message will be received. That is very different, and not to be confused, with saying this company, this businessman, should not exist. In fact, we're going to play it for you coming up. The Washington Post is going after a conservative businessman in a way that is very underhanded and very typical. I can tell you that that this is a very, very common little uh, maneuver that they're pulling on this guy. He turned the tables on them by calling them and confronting them with the story they were trying to write on him. And we're going to hear that coming up. It's a pretty amazing tape. You can join the show right now at 210-599-5555. And joining us on the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line is the 23rd Congressional District's representative, Congressman Tony Gonzalez. Congressman, welcome back. Good afternoon to you. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me back on. You know, Congressman, I'm so old 
I remember when it was the illegal immigrants that would cut through the border barriers to get into the country, not the federal government. But we have Greg Abbott saying when his people put up razor wire, like along the stretch there in Eagle Pass, the feds are cutting it. The feds, our government, is cutting the razor wire the state put down. Yeah, it, it's it's absolutely frustrating, tragic, upsetting. And, and the guys on the ground, the men and women that are on the ground, either DPS agents or sheriffs or Border Patrol agents, they're, they're doing the work. It's the leadership that's kind of giving them the policy that's just a mess. And what we're seeing in Eagle Pass right now has never been like this. This is the absolute worst. And that's saying a lot. I mean, this is year three of this border crisis. This isn't our first rodeo. Uh, what, what is happening right now is absolutely the worst. And sadly, it's only going to uh, get worse until the Biden administration does one thing. It's pretty damn simple. You put people on airplanes and you send them back to wherever they came from. As soon as you do that, it doesn't even take a lot of planes. As soon as you do that, it goes away. You remember the Haitians under the bridge in Del Rio literally two years ago, uh, as of two days ago? Uh, the way that went away, all of a sudden, there was all these people under the bridge, and then the next day everyone was gone, is because they started sending people back to their country of origin via repatriation flights. We have a president who is trying to use Texas as a waiting room, who is trying to make the asylum seekers, so-called, stay in Texas. That would frustrate or foil the, the you know, busing them to sanctuary cities. Um, we have the razor wire thing. Uh, we have the Colony Ridge story we talked about yesterday, and I'm sure you hear a lot about this enormous 70-square-mile subdivision near mm-hmm. Houston that is populated by illegal immigrants and, and basically governed by the cartels. It's a cartel uh, government within the United States. Um, you, you, I don't even know how you or anyone in your job can think that there's ever going to be any help or the right thing from this administration. Isn't everything they're doing an act of enmity toward Texas and Texas sovereignty? I mean, I, it, it certainly, they're certainly on that path. Literally everything they do is, is through the lens of a political lens of how is this going to help them politically? And what if I told you this whole thing was about money? I mean, there's a lot of people getting rich off of this deal. A lot of people. In El Paso, there's a facility out there. It costs taxpayers $400 million a year. So the, the people that are operating that uh, are, are, are getting rich off the deal. Uh, you mentioned, the, you know, these these houses that are popping up. I mean, just yesterday, I think the uh, administration came out and granted uh, uh, the, the, these people from Venezuela to be able to work. All that does is increase the number of people that are coming over. It's like a huge magnet. That way they can get rich off the deal. To me, this is how this is how it stops. And I've been very firm with this. And we kind of had a discussion of this when we were talking about the debt ceiling maybe a couple months ago. We have to use the power of the purse. And I don't want to see a government shutdown. I think it would be terrible. There's a lot of military members in, 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 in San Antonio and in my district. But something has to change. Something has to be bold enough to go, we're, we're going to make a change. You can't just be sending unlimited amount of money to a, a uh, administration that is just going to take that money and further their own political goals. 
When people ask you, as I'm sure they do, why aren't you impeaching Mayorkas? Why aren't you impeaching Merrick Garland? Why, why has it taken this long to even start to impeach uh, President Biden? What is your answer to that? I mean, it boggles my mind. Hell, I sit on the committee that would 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 be some of this impeachment, the, the Homeland Security uh, Committee. And, you know, we have hearing after hearing and we, all these people come forward and say how bad things are. And I think we're on like phase five of a, I don't know what the plan, like a phase five of 10 or something like that. But the issue is there's no action. And, and I've been very critical, both Democrats and Republicans. And this is about results. And so when, when the House passes these empty bills and, and, and it's just posturing, that does nothing to change what is happening. You know, the, the, the people in my district, they're not just on TV. Those are the people I represent. And don't think for a second San Antonio isn't impacted by this. The, you know, that, that migrant center that holds 800 people, mm-hmm. guess where all these people are going to? They're yeah. busting them there. And, and it's just uh, it's just spiral. We have to do something different. Part of that is, uh, is just real action. But I guess my question was what – I mean, so you're saying you're frustrated. Um, but the House is led by Kevin McCarthy. These committees are all mm-hmm. chaired by Republicans. What's the answer mm-hmm. to why there hasn't been more uh, aggressive uh, pursuit of this? Because you're not going to get, to go back to the point you made at the start, there's never going to be a day that the Biden administration will yeah. suddenly do the right thing. You know, a lot of it is, uh, you know, I want it to be uh, my committee that impeaches him. Well, I want it to be my committee that impeaches him. And everybody wants to talk about all the things that we're going to do, and nobody's actually doing any of it. Uh, we started the, uh, at least headed down the impeachment inquiry for Biden, and, and I've been very vocal. Like, we should have impeached his ass a long time ago because of, uh, you know, the border for one, which is evident, but the Americans, uh, he got killed. Uh, but there's a whole lot more, and there's just, it just feels a lot of words, you know, a lot of emptiness and not a lot of action. I think it's very clear that the, the Biden administration is causing a lot of harm to the country and there has to be action. But Republicans are equally to blame on some of this stuff. Like it's not just a, a finger pointing deal. We control the House. And part of it, once again, in my eyes, is we have to pass conservative appropriation bills that take a lot of this junk out of these out of the uh, administration and, and move the ball forward that way. It just can't be a, a whining about it. It has to be action, and in my eyes, the action is through yeah. uh, conservative appropriation bills. Well, speaking of the budget, um, and I know I'm not putting this on you, but I mean, again, it's it's yeah, a Republican yeah. House of Representatives. Why would you? Why, why would the House adjourn early on a Thursday <laughs> afternoon? I mean, I got to work till the end of the day Friday. Yeah. All of our listeners have to work till the end of the day Friday. Some of them work on Saturday. The, if, if they haven't finished their job, they certainly don't get to decide to just go home. Why do you guys get to go home? Yeah, it's maddening, and we shouldn't. And and uh, the fact the, the fact is, we can't get anything done. Uh, so go home and then come back, uh, and somehow over the weekend uh, things will be better, and we'll we'll be able to get something done. Uh, last week, we had Monday off, and I, I complained. I go, here we are 10 days, or I think it was 16 days at the time, from a government shutdown, and we're having a three-day weekend. You know, uh, Congress just went uh, in the, the month of August, had a six weeks back in their districts. I get it. That's all important. I do a lot. Of, that's very important to the constituents. But so is, you know, having some of these tough decisions. It boils down to this, uh, Jack. Everybody wants to be the nice guy. Everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants to be cherished. Everyone wants to be rewarded. 
Nobody wants to be a tough guy that goes, here's the deal. Everyone get in here and we're going to just duke it out until we come up with something. Nobody has the leadership skills to do that right now. It's very frustrating, but we're, it, it's good. We're going to be forced to do that when this government yeah, shuts, I, shuts down. I think it'll force us to. I know you, 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 you would, you know a lot more about this than I do, but I, I just, I have the feeling that back years ago, and I think this is before you got there back when they ran the, the TV ad with Paul Ryan pushing a lady off a cliff in a wheelchair or something or down some, remember that the whole, they're, they're trying mm-hmm. to kill yeah, elderly yeah. people with the government shutdown. I feel like ever since then, your party has just been afraid of, of being blamed. And the Democrats have that on you. Like, they know that you don't want to be the bad guys for a government shutdown. They, they know you will always be the ones blamed, no matter what the numbers show, no matter who has the majority. It'll always be the Republicans' fault. They obstructed. They don't care. They hate old people. They hate veterans, etc. Right? So I, it seems to me, and tell me if I'm wrong, like your party operates from a position of fear of being blamed. And as long as they have that on you, you're never going to get what you want. I, I, I think you're, you're onto something there. It's not just Republicans, though. Democrats, too. They're worried. The whole game I've never heard the media on... blame the Democrats for a government shutdown, Congressman. I'm sorry. I've never well, that, heard that. Well, that's what they feel. They feel that, you know what, though, they won't blame us, so we want it to shut down and we'll put it on them. And so it's this whole game of the blame game, like to make sure that the potato doesn't, the hot potato doesn't land on you. But meanwhile, you're, you're playing that game and spending all your energy, you know, making sure you're blaming somebody else and you're not solving the real problem. So Republicans are very much afraid because of, of being blamed for this, House, House Republicans in particular, yeah. because we know yeah. the media. We know the media well, is going to spend it Maybe you need to own it. But maybe you just need to own anything. it. Like, yeah, we're the, yeah, we are. We're the shutdown people. We, we think there's too much government, and, you know, our presidential candidates always promise to shrink the size of the government. So that's on brand for us. We, we, we'll own it. We are the bad guys. We're the guys that, that, that bring everybody to the table. I would just stop being so afraid. You know what they're going to say about you no matter what you do. You know what they're going to say, so just own it. I, I with you. I agree. I've been very vocal in saying, here's the deal. A continuing resolution, all that does is push Nancy mm-hmm. Pelosi's budget that is full mm-hmm. of all that junk. Mm-hmm. So is it going to be painful? Yes, it is. But it's going to take a, drawing a line in the sand and not negotiating in a way for something that's minuscule. I mean, be a, draw a line in the sand and go, here's the deal. This is, these are some of the things that the American public have, have put Republicans in the House as a majority, because if we don't do that, guess what? They're going to boot our asses out, and they should, because, you know, it's time to hold the line and be able to go, hey, enough's enough. We can't just be, you know, uh, rolling over every single time. There's going to be a lot of fireworks in the next week or so, no doubt. Congressman, I appreciate the time today. Thanks for uh, doing what you do, and thanks for coming on with us. We appreciate it. Okay, thanks, Jack. Congressman Tony Gonzalez on the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line. Listen to me giving him advice like I've ever been in Congress. But I, I don't know. I just I think they I, I'm, I, I know nothing about nothing, but I, I think they are so afraid. Uh, they have so um, given into. It's like that thing when you're a kid and you're learning to catch the ball. You can't learn to catch the ball until you stop being afraid of the ball hitting you in the face. Right. And when little kids, when you throw the ball to little kids, they flinch because they think the ball's going to hit them in the face. And they never learn to catch a ball. They, never, they can never catch a ball until they stop being afraid of being hit with the ball. Well, the Republicans will never, ever, ever win a budget showdown until they stop being afraid of being the bad guy. 
And the Democrats know this. Got their number, I think. Yeah, today's the day. It only happens once a year. The actual 21st night of September, just like the song, Earth, Wind, and Fire. And we're asking you today on the JR Poll, powered by River City Oral Surgery, is September, is September, Earth, Wind, and Fire's best song? Would you say this is their best song? And we're going to talk about that coming up. I'll tell you what, both political parties... Um, spin out their yarns and speak their lines and read their talking points and blow you-know-what up your you-know-what. But um, it is really, uh, and I'm not a member of either party, but it is frustrating to watch how confident the Democrats are with their BS and how insecure the Republicans are with their BS. So all I'm saying to, to Tony Gonzalez, I don't think he really got it. I, I, he's not a bad guy, but I don't think he really got it. All I'm saying is the people that will blame you for the government shutdown will blame you no matter what you do, and they will uh, uh, you know, sort of demonize you even if there isn't a government shutdown. You hate women. You hate elderly. You hate veterans. You hate America. You, you know, you're Dr. No. If Republicans just showed that that didn't bother them, that they knew what they were doing and why they were doing it and for whom they were doing it, it would lose a lot of its power. You know? Like, it's like when you're in school and they're name-calling you. What is the the remedy for name-calling? You just, you don't give it any oxygen. You don't, you don't react to it. If they see they're getting a rise out of you, they get more, you get more name-calling. If it doesn't work, they get tired of it. They move on to somebody else, something else. So Republicans need to own the fact that they're going to be the, the, the hawks or the hard asses or whatever about uh, spending and the size of government. Who else do we have? We don't have anybody else. And they're, they're failing and they're getting outmaneuvered by dweebs like Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries only because I'm I, this is I'm I'm convinced of this. Only because people like them know that the Republicans don't want the moniker, don't want the rep. And I think this whole thing that we're watching, you know how it's going to end. I've had people email me, Jack. I don't even know why you're talking about it. We know we've seen this movie before. We know how it ends. It ends with. A continuing resolution. It ends with a blank check. It ends with Republicans claiming a few crumbs. And then what do they always do? And I'm not trying to run down the Republicans. The Democrats suck too. But I mean, the Republicans are going to say when this is all over, please send us some more money, make some more donations, support more candidates. We need more Republicans in the House. It's always right. It's always the, the whole thing is always we tried, we're trying, give us more, send us more, we'll do better next time. You know, um, I don't know how many more times they can go to that well. Maybe with you, not at all. 
But that that's the frustration of this is the the, the outmaneuvering is because they, they're so afraid to own their position. Now look at the Democrats. Look at what they have to defend. They have to defend abortion. And they say it loud and they say it proud. <laughs> they don't shrink from it. In fact, there's an Axios story today that says the Biden White House is telling Doom, doom. Uh, I guess you know, doomed Democrats or Democrats that are fearful about the election next year. Don't worry. This is what Axios claims. Don't worry. We're going to win this thing on abortion. White House advisor Mike Dunnellan is telling uh, anxious Democrats that abortion will propel Biden to reelection, according to people familiar with the matter at Axios.com. So, in other words, they take their issues and they just. Wear them. I'm not admiring their issues or their positions. I hate their position. But you've got to be who you are. You've got to own what you are. That takes the power away from people that hate or oppose you. And conversely, if, if they can see that you are really insecure about who and what you are, they have all the power over you. And that's what's happening here. And I, you know, it worries me a little bit when the Tony Gonzalez's of the world don't get it because he's only been in Congress for like five minutes. It's one thing when you, when we used to have like Lamar Smith on the show, I'd be ripping my hair out of my head. He'd been there so long, he didn't remember how we live here in the real world. But th- these these guys like, you know, like Gonzalez, I mean, they're new, relatively. Anyway, let's have some real talk about about the Republicans. I'm not a Republican, but I talk to a lot of Republicans. I, I feel like I probably talk to as many Republicans as anybody because of the majority of the people that listen to this show, call into this show, self-identify as Republicans. Who's the most popular Republican? I mean, you don't have to think about it, right? Who's the most popular figure in the Republican Party? Who's the most trusted, admired figure in the Republican Party right now? Is it, is it Kevin McCarthy? Is it Mitch McConnell? Wait, I'll do my impression of Mitch McConnell. Ready? That was it. You didn't. Okay. Is it Ronna McDaniel? Is she is she the leader of the? Yeah, no. Is it one of the Bushes? No. It's Donald Trump. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I've ever had a Republican caller to this show complain that Republicans were being too feisty or combative or harsh or that they were, um, you know, going at it too hard. You've never heard someone say, man, I wish they'd lighten up a little, those Republicans. Woo! Never. So here's the thing. Your voters are begging you. They're begging you to get tough. They are begging you to be rough, to play rough. They are rewarding the one guy who, for all his faults, they believe does that. The one guy they believe, and I'm not sure that this is true about him, but it's what people believe about him. They believe that he doesn't give a bleep what people think or how people see him. 
I'm not saying I believe that about Donald Trump, but that's what people who admire him believe about him, that he doesn't care. He just says it, puts it out there, lowers the boom. Here's how it's going to be. I'm getting Kavanaugh in the Supreme Court. I don't care what they're saying about him. I don't care how scared you are to vote for him. We're getting him on. You better vote for him. I need you with me. And he gets him on. They don't have that, the Republicans, in, in, the, in their ranks. So whether it's the border, whether it's the budget, whether it's China, whether, you name it, you can, abortion, you can come up with any issue. When the Republicans take the position we expect them to take, they take fire and they take criticism from the quarters we expect them to take it. And, and the, the criticisms are on point. We know what, what's going to be said, it, it, whether it's abortion, whether it's China, whether it's this, whether it's that. We know what's going to be said and we know who's going to say it. And so just own it. Just own it. You will never have the editorial page of the New York Times or the Washington Post. You'll never have them. You'll never have the panel on CNN or NPR. You'll never have them. No matter what you do. You guys nominated John McCain. You nominated Mitch, uh, Mitt Romney. If ever there was going to be a moment of buy-in from these, these lefties, that would have been it. These were reasonable men. These were honorable, reasonable, soft-spoken, gentle, you know. No. Your position on abortion alone, Republicans, rules you out of those parties in the Hamptons and those cocktail parties in Hollywood and Beverly Hills. You'll never be invited You'll never sit with the cool kids at lunch, so forget about them. You know, a lot of us never sat with the cool kids once, ever, anywhere in our lives. We're okay. We know who we are. We know what we believe. We're true to ourselves. I don't need everybody to like me. There's a few people in my life I really care about their opinion. I hope I have their opinion. I don't care about anybody else. I didn't always know that about myself, but I know it now. You grow into it. When are the Republicans going to grow into it? I mean, I, I, I've watched this from my perch as a talk show host over the years. It doesn't matter whether Republicans are logical or faithful to the Bible or in touch with middle America or accurate on the Constitution Sometimes it doesn't even matter if they have truly, like in the case of a Ronald Reagan, the most admirable, amiable, likable, you can't help but like him candidate. No matter who they have and who they run and how they do, they are always evil. They're evil. They hate women. Oh, some of them are women. Yeah, but those are women who hate other women. They hate black people. They hate gay people. They hate elderly people. Well, they are old. Yeah, but they're they're self-loathing old people. I mean, you know I'm right. I'm tired of being right about it. You know I'm right. And they just keep trying. You hear it in Tony Gonzalez's voice. God love him, but 
They want to they fight, but they want to be liked by the people they're fighting. They want to be appreciated by the people who disagree with them. It's never going to happen. Shut the freaking government down. Not because that's what we want, but because until you show that you're not afraid and you don't care if you get blamed, they've got you. Cut you. It's not even a negotiation. This isn't even this isn't even like a fair fight. You gotta you gotta take the punches. I don't know. Am I wrong about this? I don't think I am. 210-599-5555. It's not gonna come down to what your energy policy is or your immigration plan is or your five point uh Ukraine proposal. It, it, it's it's Here's what's going to win you the next election. If people out there in the in the in this great country feel like someone is fighting for them, feel like someone is is listening to them, gets them, hears them. The last time they had that or they felt they did. People in states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania voted in a way that none of the experts and pundits predicted. And I think there will be much more of that. The Obama years look like the golden years compared to Biden. So if you fight and you show us you're fighting and you show us that you care about our respect, but you're not trying to earn the respect of people whose respect you'll never have, we are going to turn out in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, and probably in some places not expected I think you could have a state or two in 2024 that flips that no one saw coming. So so often in these hearings, when, when Congress has these, these fakakta hearings, you see the congressman, he's up there or she's up there, and they get their little reading glasses, and they get their little skinny microphone like they're on a game show, and then they read from a binder or a script, and you realize that whatever they're saying or asking the witness has been written for them. And that means it's also been weighted and weighed and sifted and considered and analyzed and maybe focus group tested with the voters. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have the, the, the tang of sincerity. And Victoria Sparts, yeah, she's all over the place. She's like that like wild woman, but that's from the heart. There's no script on that. Republicans need to channel some Victoria Sparts. That's what I'm saying. I think you probably know who Dave Portnoy is, uh, the guy that started Barstool Sports. He is really, in my view, he is the the cutting edge of, like, the new media. Uh, This is a multimedia platform company with a huge following. It started out with sports. It's really expanded. And um, so although he's he's a commentator and he has opinions about a lot of things and he's controversial and stuff, he's also a businessman. He has a business. Um. He found out, oh, just to back up, his company is um, doing a pizza festival. I think it's somewhere in New York. I'm not exactly sure. But anyway, it's some kind of pizza festival, pizza fest, something. And they're getting ready to do this big event that's connected to his platform. And he found out, from the, the businesses who are partnering with him and sponsoring it, that the Washington Post was putting together a hit piece on Dave Portnoy. 
And the way he found out was the reporter, a woman named Emily Weil, who's a restaurant critic for the Washington Post, was emailing these businesses and asking very leading questions. So that's how they knew and told him what the article was going to be like. He calls her, and he's recording the call as he's making it. I want you to hear this conversation because this is how the sausage is made. This is how... This is how legacy media, mainstream media, now operates and gets caught by Dave Portnoy. Listen to this. This is Emily. Hey, Emily, this is Dave Portnoy calling. Uh, I'm recording you right now, but I've noticed a bunch of people. It seems like you're sending. We have this pizza fest happening on Saturday, and you're reaching out to our advertisers, and you're basically sending an email that says to the effect Dave's a misogenic racist. Do you want to defend yourselves advertising at this event, right? I'm sorry. What's your name, Dave? I'm sorry. Who are you? I'm the guy you're writing the article about, Dave Portnoy. Oh, you're Dave Portnoy. Oh, hey, how are you? <laughs> Good. Good. No, I'm not. I'm not. I haven't said anything like that. I'm well, just, I, I can I can read if you want. If hold you the want, tape I can a read. Done. So she says, I haven't I haven't done anything like that. Butter won't melt in her mouth, right? She doesn't know yet that he has the email she sent to one of these businesses. He's about to read it to her. Take a listen. If you want, I can read what you actually sent. I have it. Yeah, yeah, read, because I, I sent a bunch of notes, so I want to make sure I know which one. Okay. Uh, we are planning to write about the festival and how, and how some of the sponsors and participants have drawn criticism by seemingly to associate themselves with Dave Portnoy, who has a history of misogenic comments and other problematic behavior. I want to make sure that Blank had a chance to respond to this since the company is the most prominent and they're partners of his festival. Oh, that's the one I said to which was definitely the most pointed of them because I really did want them to respond. So now she admits she did do it. I totally, do you think that's fair? Like, I, I totally disagree with the assertions of what you said, that misogenic and all that stuff. So, like, it kind of backs people into a corner. So I'm happy to go over anything. I mean, you have... That is pretty pointed. You said you didn't do it. Then I have the exact evidence of you doing it. So no, I didn't say I didn't do that. I said I did. Yes, that you was did. The one that was the most well, no, you, you, that went before I before I provided proof. You said you didn't really remember doing that, and then I read it to you, and you're like, "Oh yeah, I did it that one time." So you did do it. Um, I'm happy to talk about the comments because to me, it's kind of like torturous interference. Like we're doing an event. Everyone's happy about the event. I, uh, you know, I've raised fifty million for small business. I've helped pizza. None of that. It's Dave's misogenic and problematic, and I'm happy to talk about it because, to me, nobody would like if someone's going around sending that email to their sponsors. And, again, you're not, like, questioning. You're, you're, it's almost like a statement of fact. This is what I am. Yeah, so um, I do want to talk to you about this, um, and I just want you to know that the story I'm working on, I'm working on with a colleague, um, and I want to kind of loop him on this because we did want to talk to you. And we were when were you, when were you going to reach out? We were planning on doing it tomorrow morning, but um, <laughs> so you're going to write <laughs> the, the event article is Saturday. And give me like I've had that a bunch. People write <laughs> no, a full no, article and then give me the points no, no, after. We're doing a bunch of, no, we're doing a bunch of reporting, and we wanted to make sure that when we finally did talk to you, we could really kind of present what you know or talk about things more fully. Based hold on, on hold on. So what she's what she's doing. She's going behind his back to his sponsors. She's saying, hey, you know he's a misogynist and he's, he's 
controversial and aren't you worried about being associated with him? She claims that once she did that, which is not good form, that's not journalism, that's agitation, it's agitprop. Then she says, well, but then I was going to come back to you. Then I was going to circle back to you. But, of course, that would be at the end. Now the article's written. Now the comments have been made and locked in. The event is, you know, the next day. So she claims she was going to include him. I don't know if she was or not. But she was already creating the story. The story was this guy's sponsors are concerned about him being a misogynist. She made the story. She created the story. All right, let's listen to a little more of this. It sounds like you have your opinion made of me based on that email. So then how, if you don't have your opinion made of me, how do you say in an intro email, Dave Portnoy has a history of misogenic comments and other problematic behavior. That's how you introduce the email. Yeah. So look, I just want you to know that this is not, I want to talk to you about this, but. um, Don't you think you should talk to me before sending that email? What I wanted to do is I wanted to talk to you when we had some specific questions for you. And so I wanted to kind of have the full idea of what we were. She wanted to be able to hit him with the concerns of the sponsors of the pizza festival. But she was going to create the concerns. They weren't there. These people wouldn't have already agreed to work with Dave Portnoy if they were. And by the way. There isn't anybody involved in this that wouldn't know who he is. So he's caught her. And he's also showing how it's done. All right? People say, it is said, you have a history of. Okay, she's a restaurant critic. It's a pizza festival. Just tell people where it is. (laughs) You're supposed to be in favor of this. And by the way, the background is, he does stuff like this because part of his brand or his ID is that he promotes small businesses. He, he got very big on that during the pandemic. He was on uh, a lot of different shows, you know, talking about the challenges and, and talking about the importance to Main Street America of saving local businesses like pizza shops. And, and so his, his thrust here is to feature and highlight, um, you know, mom and pop, independently owned uh, pizza establishments. The Washington Post blows right past that, seeing an opportunity to get a guy who sometimes favors Trump, who sometimes favors Tucker Carlson, who's been on Fox News. He's kind of like the my pillow guy of of sports, and she's busted, totally, totally busted, sending these inflammatory, sort of um, insinuating. Email, sort of like the old joke, when did you stop beating your wife? You know, and, and, and I love the little chuckle in her voice, and she's very condescending. Well, of course we were going to talk to you. You just don't understand how this works. And it, it goes on for another several minutes, but basically um, what he does is important because I, I think there's two, and this kind of speaks to the thing we were talking about with Republicans. There's way too many times when um, people that are either conservative, Republican, um, libertarian, uh, evangelical, they get on the sort of on the, uh, they get the short end of the stick. They sort of get on the wrong side of the field. And, and they wind up playing defense the whole time. 
I've said many times, I, I've had offers to be interviewed about what I do and how I do it. And my policy has been, because I got tired of being taken out of context and misquoted and, and having hit pieces done on me in the current and other places. So I finally said, you know what, here's what I'll do. If I, if I decide I want to do an interview, I'll just do it on my show. You can come on and you can interview me on my show. And that way everybody can hear everything. They can hear the questions that you ask. They can hear the answers that I give. And then you can excerpt it and chop it up if you want, but people will have heard the whole thing. And I'll have that. We'll all have that. And that's what Portnoy's doing here. He's saying, okay, l- l- let me record you doing what you do so people can see how you do it. Good for him. Uh, 210-599-5555. And Brad is on the radio. Brad, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Hey, Jack, you know, it's what's that Yogi Berra is saying. It's deja vu all over again. As I told the screener, and I, I know you know this, but maybe not everybody does. So, you know, in the 50s, there were people that were had comedy shows on TV. And then these uh, these people would call and say, hey, you know that one of your writers, your script writers or joke writer, Jack Riccardi or Brad, well, they were uh, members of the Communist Party. They went to a communist meeting. Or Here's a picture of them in a room where there's a communist talking. And uh, we're going to tell the, the, the breakfast cereal or the detergent manufacturers that sponsor your program that you have a communist on your payroll. And, you know, how, how do you think they're going to react once we tell them that? And this uh, Washington Post so-called restaurant critic woman that, that took it upon herself to, uh, to generate this, I, I always say, you know, if you're going to quote me, give me a citation or a date and time where I said this and show me where it's in print or whatever. And uh, good on him for recording her and watching her weasel out and try to squiggle around. But anybody who really concerns is concerned about the First Amendment and freedom of the press and abuse of the press, man, that's scary because, you know, he's not the only one who's probably been done that way. Now, well, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, and I, uh, you know, yeah, I, I like the comparison to the Red Scare and the, you know, campaigns of intimidation and insinuation. But why can't she just write a, a, a damn story about a pizza festival? I mean, does everything have to be politics? Does everything have to be polemic and problematic? I mean, are, are the left, I don't want to stereotype, but it seems like people on the left are joyless. Uh, nothing can ever just be a joke nothing can ever just be a meal nothing can ever just be a tv show a song everything is everything right everything is agenda driven and and so portnoy is a guy who yes he has opinions but here he is doing something that's just sort of like supporting the community i'll tell you i i get this bs when we do rapping with jack and I am happy. You can engage me all year long on all the things I say and positions I take. But rapping with Jack is just helping people. It's not it's not conservative or controversial or Republican or whatever. It's just helping people. It's people helping people. And um, that's what he's doing here. And there's a kind of a joyless snarkiness um relentlessness to oh even though i'm a food writer i'm gonna see if i can divorce dave portnoy from some of his sponsors yeah i mean you know um i think you also see in this what we were talking about 
before. There is a difference between you and I choosing to do business with companies based on what we perceive their politics to be versus people who want to drive a business out of business for its politics. I don't want Target to go out of business. I don't want Anheuser-Busch to go out of business. I don't want Disney to go out of business. I really don't. Truly, I don't. But I'm going to choose where I spend my money. And I think everybody should. That's all. So if I don't like Dave Portnoy, then maybe I won't go to his pizza festival. <laughs> but see, it can't stop with that. It has, to, it, it has to go beyond that. And even now, you see it in our politics. There's not an attempt to simply run against Republicans or conservatives. There's an attempt to end Republicans and conservatives. We can't have them. We don't need this. There should just be people who think like us. I saw a um, story today. I get these little newsletters about radio and broadcasting. and I saw a story today, and there's stories like this every day. This was about a lady at National Public Radio who just got a promotion. She's the vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion at National Public Radio. And good for her. I hope she has a... I hope it goes well for her, and she has a nice office, and I hope she has a good run there. I hear they pay very well. So, But I had a little chuckle when I saw that she's the vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion, because I thought maybe I should send my resume to her. Maybe I should apply for a job at National Public Radio. Now you're saying, well, wait a minute, Jack, you have a job in radio. And why would you want to go over there? Well, because she's the vice president of diversity and national public radio doesn't have anybody like me they don't have anybody who espouses the things i do they don't have anybody who represents the points of view that i represent so if she's really the leader of diversity maybe i should send her a resume of course i'm not going to because I know what they mean by diversity. They don't really mean diversity. Right? They don't mean opinion or perspective diversity. They don't mean value diversity or ideological or philosophical diversity. And so it's, it's this very narrow, pinched kind of worldview. I'm not picking on this lady. She's probably a lovely person. I'm just saying that... Their understanding of even simple words, a pizza festival, is <laughs> completely different. A, 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 a holiday donation drive, completely different. Everything has to be pulled through the knothole of politics and political correctness and acceptability. And and truthfully, honestly, when I see the word diversity used this way, I know that it actually means the opposite. What diversity leaders, managers, actually do is enforce a uniformity that is relentless. I couldn't get hired at National Public Radio any more than I could get hired by the circus. And it wouldn't matter how many diversity managers or 
leaders they employed because they don't really mean that kind of diversity. And I'm not complaining. I'm just pointing it out. And don't worry, I won't I won't bother her. I won't mail her anything. Would you say that September is Earth, Wind, and Fire's best song? Yes or no? What do you think? I think you could make the argument for that. I think you could. Um, we'll talk about that coming up next hour. Uh, it's our JR poll. We'll have results coming up on that as well. And uh, right here, I want to check the Jack Chat line. That's the number that's always available, always open. And if you're listening to the podcast, like you're not listening to us live, but you're hearing us as a podcast, or even if you're listening to us live, but you're a couple of topics behind with something you want to say, it's very easy to call this number, leave your first name, your city, and your comment on the Jack Chat line at 210-599-5550. Let's take a listen. Hi, Jack. Craig in Pipe Creek. I am responding to your uh, interview with Representative Roy, who is my rep. The undertone of the conversation really sounded like what we're going to get, despite everything, is another continuing resolution to keep the government going. And then the Democrats are going to get the big majority of what they want in additional spending because we don't want to shut the government down again. And I blame Republican leadership, McCarthy, I'm looking at you and his crew that, like Representative Roy said, they should have been on this much earlier and whipping the caucus to do some significant expense reduction, but they wait. So it's a crisis, and they don't want to get blamed. And so what we're going to hear again is we tried really hard, like you say, Jack, just give us more people, and we'll do better next time. Thanks for your interview, though. Bye. Okay, thanks, Craig. Um, yeah, no, I I, I, I agree i think that's what's going to happen in the end is is uh hey we gave it a good gave it a good try everybody um howard wrote to me uh, jack at ktsa.com he said it's important for republicans to educate people on what a shutdown really means uh once educated it's easier to own the shutdown i think that's true that's a good point uh let's check another one on the jack chat line hey jack this is alan and Frank branch but 10,000 illegal aliens coming across the border. I don't understand why they don't just pass a simple law that says, hey, if you don't pass, at a, if you don't come in at a port of entry, then we're going we're gonna to send you back, regardless of what you claim. Like, if you have an asylum claim, go to the port of entry and claim it, and then we'll let you in. Isn't it just that simple? And if the volume is so high, then let's set up, you know, two or three or 10 or 20 emergency points of entry. But if you're going to just come in willy-dilly, wherever you want, I don't really care what your claim is. The, the law says you have to come in at a port of entry. Why can't it just be that simple? Yeah. Well, we, do, we, don't, need a, we don't need any more laws. I, I, I don't know how to convince people of this, but um, we're not suffering a lack of, of laws or, or, or legislation of the border. Um, and this is also not, I, 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 don't, I don't want to pick on Alan, but this is not, what's happening right now, the mayor of Eagle Pass today has declared a state of emergency, basically in his town. You're not seeing a crisis of overwhelming numbers of, of hey, we're, we're trying, but we just can't keep up. We've, we're, you know, this is a, a designed chaos this is a controlled demolition okay there 
this is, you know, they've rigged the charges and they've wired them up and they've timed them up and they're imploding the southern border just like you'd bring down an old bridge or an old building that you were going to knock down and flatten out for something else. That's what's happening here. And until you see it that way, you will think we just need a better law, we just need a better Secretary of Homeland Security. No, no. The so-called border crisis is a crisis of our choosing. And it enables other things to happen. Now, it's interesting to hear the governor of New York, the governor of Massachusetts, the mayor of New York City, the mayor of Boston, the mayor of Chicago, talking about the problem being Greg Abbott. Are they, are they dummies, these people that are saying this stuff? No. They're saying the problem is Greg Abbott because, hello, Greg Abbott's a Republican, and they're all Democrats. They're not going to say the problem is Joe Biden. They're not going to say the problem is Alejandro Mayorkas. They're not going to say the problem is that you've signaled open borders. You've screamed it. So we, we aren't in need of more laws or more points of entry or more emergency centers or any of this stuff. Uh, we're in need of a, of a um, wave watershed, scare the doo-doo out of them election with turnout and upsets and states flipping that um, creates an existential crisis for one of our political parties. And if we don't have that next year, and we may not, I'm not saying I know that'll happen, but that's what it will take. We don't have that. We will continue along down this this road. We will continue to be the country that the entire world this week watched lose a $80 million stealth airplane. And, and a country that enforces the borders of other countries, but, but chooses for some bizarre reason not to enforce its own. Uh, the mayor of Eagle Pass, who's a Democrat, has declared an emergency, state of emergency there, because even by the standards of recent influx and records that have been set day by day, week by week, of illegal immigrants pouring into the country across the southern border, they now feel like they have lost control of the streets of the city, basic city services. There is, in essence, a um, an SOS going up uh, from this border city of Eagle Pass. And it, it is a distress call that we have heard from cities, towns, counties, individuals. You've heard callers to this show who live along the border, who have ranches. You've heard the stories. You've heard the anecdotes on this and other shows. And I, I feel like we may still have a disconnect about this in that I, I, I'm not sure if, Everybody's on the same page about what's happening here. So there are unprecedented numbers of people coming at the border. And there are therefore unprecedented numbers of people coming across the border. And they are not being intercepted. And they are being admitted and they are being given 
uh, asylum, and they are being told to report within 60 days, and they are also being transported within the country, and not just by the Greyhound buses, but remember, the federal government is flying people to dozens and dozens of cities around the country. This is not happening because somebody tried their best or somebody's not very good at homeland security. In fact, the whole impeach Mayorkas is not because he's not good at it. It's because he's not enforcing the law. None of this is legal. None of this is legal. Willy-nilly declaring protective status for entire ethnic groups like the president did today for Venezuelans, this is not legal. But by the time it gets unraveled and halted by an injunction or reviewed by the federal courts, the people will already be here. The damage will already be done. And so what I'm just saying is, and we can talk about this and we can argue, if you disagree with me, by all means, come at me. This is intentional. So in the past, if you disagreed with the border policies of the Bush administration or the Clinton administration or the Reagan administration or whoever, Obama or whatever, in the past you could argue that I don't think they're very good at what they're doing or I don't think they have a very good plan or I don't think they're using technology or using... This is very intentional. The numbers, the demographics are very intentional. It is interesting to watch the governor of New York, the mayor of New York City, basically asking for specific nationality groups to be given the protective, uh, the temporary protective status. So they're placing the order, these Democrats in blue states and cities, and Biden is filling the order. And when you think of it that way, you realize we don't need another law. (laughs) This is not not about an insufficiency of the law. 210-599-5555. You know, for all its faults, for all its waste, the federal government, the United States government, is a superpower. I mean, it's still the country that the world calls on if there's a natural disaster, if there's a war, if there's um, a need for peacekeeping, for maintaining sovereignty and borders, for enforcing free and fair elections. We carry the water, we do the heavy lifting for our multinational partners. That was, that was Trump's big complaint, right? That, that we were members of these international organizations, but we were doing all the work and paying all the freight. And, and that's a separate discussion. But the fact is, we should remember how capable we are. The border is not our insufficiency. The border is our choice. 210-599-5555. What do you think about that? You know, um, we had a good laugh about the missing F-35. And people are now making jokes about how the next thing they'll, the next plane they'll lose will be Air Force One. 
But when you look at so many things, uh, when you look at the Lucy with the football thing that's going on with the budget, um, when you look at, you know, Mitch McConnell freezing up and John Fetterman in his Halloween costume, when you look at Joe Biden stumbling and bumbling and word salad from Kamala Harris, and on and on it goes. I think there's a lot of confusion in the world about what we're capable of and what we can be depended on to do. Now, it doesn't stop them from asking, heck, demanding, look at Zelensky. Uh, but we we really are at the moment projecting confusion and um, kind of clown car dynamics, right? Like, what must it look like to much smaller, much weaker countries uh, that we've lost control of our southern border? That we've given up control of it, I should say. And I was reading a book recently, and I'll talk about this more another day, but there was, there's, there's a book that came out a couple of years ago called Chaos Under Heaven. And it's by a Washington Post guy, and it's about Trump and his China policy. And when I read the book, I, I expected it to be very anti-Trump uh, because it's the Washington Post, and, you know. Um, it's actually a pretty fair book. It, it's not very complimentary to Trump, but it's, it's, it's fair. And it gives him credit where I think he should get credit, and it pulls no punches where he's wrong. But one of the things it, it talks about, the book talks about, is how um, carefully and minutely uh, the Chinese study every aspect of American life. They have a huge um, government ministry. Like, imagine if we had a, a CIA, but then we had a separate CIA to just study one country. That's what they have. I forget the name of it. But it's an agency that does nothing but collate, observe, note-take. Note um, it, it looks at every American public figure. It looks at every nook and cranny of the federal government. It looks at every American company. It studies in great detail who and what our influences are. And the reason they do that is because they are looking constantly for um, weaknesses. They are looking constantly for gaps in the armor, right? You know, little, little uh, vulnerabilities, little blind spots, whatever you want to call them. And, um, of course, exploiting those. It's almost insane when you read it. But I believe it's probably true. And so, among the other problems we have with this border, just, just imagine what we are telegraphing to the rest of the world. And if you're worried about terrorism, about war, about future attacks on us or our allies or our interests. 
all of this um, chaos, designed, controlled, chosen chaos on the border, it's all being drank in, drunk in by the, uh, well, by the Chinese and probably by others. I think about that sometimes. I mean, I know we all have our own beefs with what the government does and politicians, but I, I have to think sometimes, what must this look like? And I don't, I don't think it because I'm worried about wanting their approval. I, I think about it because we are a country uh, with a big target painted on it. And you saw what a relatively primitive rudimentary attack 22 years ago did. Now imagine somebody that's made a long-term detailed study. They've got it all collated, filed, written down, cross-tabbed. They know who's who and what's what. It's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? I don't mean to get too deep here, but you know. And just so you know, if you're new to our show, we've recently started listening. I don't know if everybody's up to speed on this. We're live from 4 to 7, Monday through Friday, on the radio, live radio show, but then also available as a full episode podcast that you can take with you, listen when and where you want, or catch up, maybe catch up on the weekends if you miss stuff during the week. And you can find the Jack Riccardi Show podcast on the on-demand menu at ktsa.com or Look for us in the other places you like to get your other uh, podcasts. I, um, you remember the guy, uh, Sam Brinton, the guy that worked for Biden in the Energy Department and was the cross-dressing, clothes-stealing guy? Remember, you, you, if you've forgotten, he, he got busted a couple of different times for stealing suitcases at airports full of women's clothing. And the way he got busted was... He stole a suitcase at Washington Metropolitan Airport that belonged to a sort of up-and-coming clothing designer. And then he was wearing those dresses in public, photographed, shown on TV. And these dresses were not off the rack. These were a designer's creation. And she recognized them. She had lost her bag in 2019. She knew that these were her clothes because no one else had them. Uh, in fact, she had flown, this woman had flown to, um, she had flown into Washington because she was going to participate in a fashion show. It was going to be like her big break. I mean, I don't know a lot about being a fashion designer, but I would imagine that it's very hard until you get you know, shown somewhere, and you get that big break, right? So she's on her way to this big career break, and she's got a suitcase full of her unique creations. And the suitcase gets lost. We're terribly sorry. Delta Airlines, the airport, we're terribly sorry. We'll do everything we can. And then she turns on her TV, and here's Sam Brinton wearing her clothes. Now... I'm not going to say that Sam Brinton and his disgusting, reprehensible, felonious behavior 
is in any way typical of or common with non-binary or cross-dressing people. I'm not saying that, okay? Here's what I am saying. Sam Brinton got his job because he's non-binary and cross-dressing. So if you're going to hire people because you're big on being able to say we have the first lesbian this and we have the first non-binary that and we have the first transsexual one of these and one of those, if you're going to do that, then... And, and you actually care about these groups, you ought to be finding exemplary people. And you don't. They don't. Sam Brinton is a, is a complete kook. I mean, just this is just nuttier than a fruitcake. And, and I think about Corinne Jean-Pierre. You know, she's constantly touting what a historic figure she is. She's the first this and she's the first that. Yeah, but she's terrible at what she does. Wouldn't you, if you were a member of an underrepresented group, wouldn't you want the first one of your group, type, clan, whatever, to be an impressive person? Wouldn't you hope that they would make you proud? Who in the world could be proud of Sam Brinton? Who in the world would say, "Man, he's just like me"? You wouldn't say, "Man," but you know. I mean, I, I mean, it, it's it, it boggles the mind. I don't agree with identity politics. I don't like it at all. I have no use for it. I'm just saying, if you're going to do it, wouldn't there be a more um, wouldn't it be more effective if the people that were the quote unquote first were like really impressive people, and, and everybody had to say, well, you know, I don't agree with this or that, but i got to admit, he or she really knows his stuff, or they really are good at answering those questions in the White House briefing room, or whatever it is. Here's Corinne Jean-Pierre today having a meltdown when Peter Ducey's trying to ask a question about the border. Cut number four. Listen to this. What do you call it here at the White House when 10,000 people illegally cross the border in a single day. So what do you call it, Peter, when GOP puts forth a... a, a wait, no. No, 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 you can't. Green? I'm answering... Okay, we're going to move You're on. You're answering no, a question? No, 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 okay. no, 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 we're moving on. Green, moving. please. In the back. No, no, you said you were stopping right, the flow of the border. No, no, I tried to right? answer... Peter, okay. I tried to answer the question. You stopped me. Let's go. Okay, wow. Somebody's having a bad day. 210-599-5555. You remember, um, remember Bob Ross, the guy that had the painting show? He, he was kind of a big deal when I was a kid. And then he's become now this incredible pop culture phenomenon. If you're not familiar with... Uh, Bob Ross, he's been dead many, many, many years. But in the 80s, he had a TV show where he would paint. I think it was on PBS. Is that right, Don? Was it on PBS? I think it yes, was. Yes, PBS. Yeah, so he'd paint a painting, and he'd be talking about painting while he was painting the painting. It was like watching a cooking show. The person's cooking and talking about cooking, only he was painting. And it was um, pleasant to the ear, unlike me. And he was just sort of easy to hang out with. And I remember my, my little brother watched him faithfully. 
And I don't know how many people actually painted with Bob Ross. I think there were probably way more people that just kind of liked him, just kind of liked listening to him, watching him. And some people probably painted. So anyway, um, that happened, and he had the show, and then he passed away, I think, like in the early 90s. And um, I think, to my eye, I'm not an art expert, but these were not great paintings. They were, they were just, you know, they were okay. At the time we were watching him, no one thought this was like, you know, museum stuff. Well, now uh, his paintings are selling for millions of dollars. I read today that um, a Minneapolis gallery has one of his paintings called A Walk in the Woods, which could be the name of (laughs) probably many of his paintings. They always had trees, so anyway. Um, I'll put a little satin green in there. Here he is. getting close enough, we should begin seeing some color. A little bit of white. Don't want it totally dark yet. There. Just dabbing Perfect. at the canvas. Okay, let me wipe the old knife off. Gentle voice. Hmm. Fan brush. We'll use a fan brush. Yeah. Load it full of color. Both sides. Yeah. Both sides. Okay, let's go up in here. Now maybe in our world, there lives, it does now, some little trees back in here. Now mm. these are a little closer. You're seeing a little more detail. A little more mm. distinct. This uh, painting they sold in Minneapolis um, was painted on January 11th, 1983, and um, they are expecting to get $9.83 million for it. So basically, had Bob Ross known at the time, (laughs) he could have just painted one. He's painting his little head off, right? We needed to pay one. We don't know where they go. Where I don't feel good about this. Exactly like I'm, I'm happy that he's getting all the recognition now, and I'm, I'm happy that that he's become this, this pop culture phenomenon. Like my daughter is, is all about Bob Ross. She never saw him. She never saw him. I mean, he was, he, he was dead way before she was born. She has the books. She has the coloring books. She has the videos. She watches them on her phone. She loves Bob Ross. She has Bob Ross magnets. You know, and her age group, they're very into him. There is a um, satellite channel mm-hmm. that has every episode of mm-hmm. Bob mm-hmm. Ross, and it's just a continuous loop. Don't you think it's interesting, Don, that you're a media guy. I mean, don't you think it's interesting that he would be so appealing to people now? Like, th- that says something oh. about the times we're living mm-hmm. in, doesn't it? Especially during the COVID period. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, like... Th- Apparently, there was something going on that maybe even he didn't completely realize. But um, I I really think people, at first when I saw that there was like this renewal of interest, I thought it was maybe ironic or uh, that people were kind of like mocking him a little bit. But then I realized, no, this is like, um, he has like a following. And I've heard people say, "I, I don't paint, I just like listening to his voice. I think there's something to that. So, I don't know who gets the nine point eight three million dollars, but that's that's unbelievable. You don't know? put too much detail in here. It's too far no. away. You're not going to see a yeah. lot of detail. Nine point eight million, Bob. Don't mess it up. Close to you. 
make, make some happy little clouds. Uh, those clouds are happier than we knew. In a quicksand, and I'm starting to sing. I need someone to help me, but I don't know which way to turn. I know I don't have much of a choice. I'll go out of my mind. Or into the night. I do think it's interesting um, that... A, a young generation of people would be so captivated by what Bob Ross is doing, not having any, you know, not 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 like they just stumbled. We 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 just stumbled across him on television. You know, we were we, as kids, we we watched him because oh, what, what's this? You know, but um, they know who he is. They know where to find him. Like Don said, people have curated and collated all of his uh, little broadcasts and. Um, there's something in people's lives that's chaotic and loud and distracting and noisy, and he he's apparently fulfilling a need, which is really interesting. And um, there's something, you know, if you think about it, although he's visual, he's painting, and he's on television, I think probably the most salient quality of Bob Ross, Don, would be his voice. Like, I think it's a totally different thing if he doesn't sound the way he sounds. So that's basically, to me, that's a voice thing. Like there's something going on there with the soothing tone, the low-key kind of tone. Um, what is the happiest period in a person's life? It's a big question. I don't know the answer. I can tell you what somebody has come up with. A study in Germany uh, that looked at over 400,000 people, and they asked questions at different ages and stages. They were asking people questions about how they felt about themselves, and again, at different ages and stages, to try to determine when are you the happiest. Um, and by happiness, they meant life satisfaction, positive emotional states, and negative emotional states. Uh, they found that children's happiness started declining at the age of nine to about the age of 16. And then life satisfaction increased slightly until the age of 70. And then it dropped off again after 70 until the age of 96. So there were different periods and wide periods of life where people had life satisfaction and happiness, but it seems to start to decline at the age of nine. Does that surprise you? I think I was a little surprised by that. Um, I don't remember thinking about whether or not I was happy when I was a kid. How, how do you even know, right? Like, what are you comparing yourself to? You, you, when you're a kid, you just compare yourself to, like, other kids. Like, he has a nicer bicycle or, you know, <laughs> or something like that. Uh, happiness, like, life satisfaction. Nine? What nine-year-old is sitting there going, I'm not sure I'm satisfied with life. I don't know if I like the direction this is going in. 
We, um, and of course, I don't know how it was when you were growing up, but uh, I don't think my parents were checking on our life satisfaction too often. You know, grew up in an Italian family. You were, you were lucky to be alive. <laughs> You're lucky we let you ride in the car. Do you have life satisfaction? But yeah, no, they studied it and they wanted to figure out if there were certain ages. So um, if you've missed out, if you're over the age of uh, nine, too late now, I'm sorry. Apparently things get good after 96. Got that to look forward to. (laughs) Put on some Bob Ross, you'll feel better. Um, It says here that New York City has developed... The trash can of the future. That sounds like the problem they needed to solve in New York City. I I think that must have been it. They needed more modern trash cans. Uh, The new um, trash cans, the first 300 of them, are arriving and being installed around the city this month, according to the Commissioner of Sanitation. They go for $1,000 apiece. They were designed by a... um, competition that was held over a period of years to create a successor to the plain green metal trash cans that are seen all over city street corners. Uh, They wanted um, cans that would um, stand up better, uh, be easier to empty. The old cans had not been redesigned since the 1930s and had large holes in their mesh design that allowed trash to leak and attract rats. Uh, So the new cans don't have that. A Canadian company got a $25 million contract with the city, and they are ordering the cans uh, to replace all 23,000 street garbage cans over the next few years. Boy, talk about playing the, the fiddle on the deck of the Titanic. You know, you're New York City, and you're like, what is... What's the top priority? Oh, let's get these garbage cans replaced. Yeah, so. Don't let, please, whatever you do, don't let San Antonio City Council hear about this, or they will have to have them, right? You know it. You know they're, if they if they get wind of this, they will have to have these trash cans. All right, on the uh, JR poll, powered by River City Oral Surgery, is September, by Earth, Wind, and Fire, their best song. Because today is the 21st night of September. And, uh, you know, so this is the day that the song references. Had to ask. I think you could make the argument that September is their best song. I, 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 have, uh, I have some favorites. I mean, I love That's the Way of the World. Um, it's a beautiful song. I, I love when Earth, Wind, and Fire sounds really tight. Uh, another one like that is Getaway. Just very tight. Got to get you into my life. Uh, they have some. They have some softer stuff like "Reasons" is a beautiful song, beautiful lyrics, very easy to listen to. You 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 realize when you hear some of their softer stuff like "Reasons" that this was a before anything. This was a jazz group when they were coming out. Like at the beginning of the seventies, they were kind of in the the category of jazz and Afro jazz and. Um, but yeah, September is certainly got to be one of their best. And I don't know, I was thinking today, Earth, Wind, and Fire is one of those groups that I don't think I've ever heard an Earth, Wind, and Fire song that I was able to resist singing with it. 
I can't, you can't help yourself with their music. In the car, in a radio studio. Um, yeah, they, they were very big in the 70s and 80s. They had their own, uh, like, sub-label on CBS Records, which is a pretty big deal. And at a time when the record companies were very powerful and, and dictated everything, even to the big name bands, I, I remember reading Earth, Wind, and Fire had like exceptional artistic independence and control. They controlled their touring budgets and their album art, and um, and they went all out. I mean, if you saw them in concert at their peak, they had magicians and acrobats and fireworks and... Um, I remember in the 80s, did you have a boombox in the 80s? I had a um, Panasonic boombox, and they were in the TV ad for the Panasonic boombox. And in the ad, the boombox was descending from the sky like a UFO, and then Earth, Wind, and Fire, the band would come out of like the cassette door. (laughs) Like they were getting out of a spaceship. So they were as cool as cool got. And you had to have a Panasonic boombox. So the question was, is September their best song? The answer is yes. 64%. Yes, 36%. No. And since this is the 21st night of September and love is changing the minds of pretenders while chasing the clouds away, let's hear it on our way out the door tonight. It's Earth, Wind, and Fire and the 21st night of September. Have a good night.